0: Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legal listening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. Hey, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hi there, just me. I'm about to read to you the concurring opinion of Justice Bastarache in The Queen and Cap. If you want to hear what me and Zach thought about the case, or if you want to listen to the majority decision by Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Sabella, head on over to the previous episode. Enjoy! The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Bastarache. Part 1. Introduction. The Minister of Fisheries and Oceans has the task of managing the salmon fishery on the Fraser River. In an effort to enhance the management of this fishery and address a number of issues besetting the fishery, he developed the Aboriginal Fisheries Strategy, a component of which in turn is the Pilot Sales Program. Under this program, the Minister exercised his discretion under the Fisheries Act and the Aboriginal Communal Fishing Licenses Regulations. On August 19, 1998, the minister issued a license to the Musqueam, Barard, and Tawasin First Nations, permitting them to fish for a period of 24 hours in exclusivity and to sell their catch. The appellants, who are all commercial fishers, mounted a protest fishery during the Aboriginal fishery and were charged for fishing during a time when the fishery was closed to them. At their subsequent trial, The appellants did not challenge the law under which they were charged, but asserted that the trial's proceedings should be stayed as their rights to equality under Section 15.1 of the Charter had been violated. They argue that their right to participate as equals in the public commercial fishery has been breached on the basis of a race-based distinction, and that any race-based distinction affects the dignity of the persons subject to discrimination. The Respondent Minister argues that the appellants were not denied any benefit of the law, as they were provided opportunities to fish and, indeed, caught significant quantities of salmon. Moreover, providing Aboriginal communities, which have historically been disadvantaged, with access to commercial salmon fishing, does not demean the dignity of commercial salmon fishers by treating them as less worthy and valued members of Canadian society. The Respondent Minister stated that the policy under the Aboriginal fisheries strategy was to provide opportunities to fish for food and for social and ceremonial purposes, and in some cases pilot sales to Aboriginal communities having historical use and occupancy of an area. He explained that approximately 70 fisheries agreements were negotiated annually with Aboriginal groups throughout the province. Under these agreements, the groups received communal licences authorizing fishing in accordance with the fisheries agreements. The position of the respondent is that the members of the claimant group, which consists of individuals, cannot properly compare themselves to Aboriginal communities, the recipients of the benefit in question. The appellants respond that membership in a band does not constitute a valid proxy in any circumstance that is functionally relevant to the regulation of the public fishery. The appellants add that any cultural significance to fishery activity is dealt with by the doctrine of Aboriginal rights and the protection of such rights by Section 35 of the Constitution Act. With regard to the communal aspect of the fishery, the trial judge, Provincial Court Justice Kitchen, had this to say. Quote, the Department labels the fishery communal, but the individuals designated by the bands to participate are completely on their own and keep all profits for themselves. The pilot sales fishery provides financial assistance to only the individual members of the bands, not the bands generally. It is not a communal fishery. Band members who were most successful in the pilot sales fishery were those who were also commercial fishers and operated fully equipped commercial fishing vessels, quote. The pilot sales program was not related to the specific Aboriginal right to fish for food found in the Queen and Sparrow. Rather, according to the respondent, it was designed to reach negotiated solutions to claims for Aboriginal commercial fishing rights and to provide economic opportunities to native bands to support their progress towards self-sufficiency. Minister Crosby, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans at the time, explained that unauthorized sale of Aboriginal food fish was creating a management problem. He explained that, rather than litigating the issue, the Department sought to reach an agreement with Aboriginal groups as to how much fish they could take and sell and to allow the Department to regulate how the fish would be sold. James Matkin, speaking for the Department of Fisheries, explained that the pilot sales are justified as an exercise in policy making of the Minister's authority under the Fisheries Act, and that they are designated to follow the Court's direction to negotiate rather than to litigate. With regard to the rationale for the pilot project, Provincial Court Justice Kitchen had this to say, quote, it is difficult to discern the real purpose of the pilot sales fishery. Fisheries Minister John Crosby gave control of poaching as the reason for the program. He also mentioned that the program was to be an experiment. This is the second justification given for the program. This literature also asserts that the Sparrow case requires that this type of opportunity be afforded to Aboriginals. This is clearly not the situation. Department literature also mentions the fiduciary duty society has to the aboriginal community and how this has prompted the department to move ahead of case law. Most significantly, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans have given economic development and an ameliorative purpose as the reason for the pilot sales program. But there is a real suspicion that this is an ex post facto justification. Even if financial disadvantage were an issue, there was no economic study or assessment done prior to or during the pilot sales fishery concerning the economic need of the bands and the financial rewards the fishery would produce. Several reasons have been proffered at various times. There has been no consistent rationale for the program, quote. The important point to be made here is that the respondents' position is that the Aboriginal fishery strategy and the pilot sales program were primarily aimed at management of the fishery and did not have as their primary object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged groups or individuals. The respondent therefore does not rely on section 152 of the charter. He states that Section 152 is an interpretive provision, and that given this court's established lines of authority on the proper approach to analysis of the equality claims under Section 151, the ameliorative purpose or effect of a program can readily be taken into account under Section 15. Provincial Court Justice Kitchen held that the pilot sales program violated Section 15 and was not saved by Section 1 of the Charter. The summary conviction appeal judge, Chief Justice Brenner, allowed the appeal on the basis that the trial judge had identified the claimant and comparator groups too narrowly that he had failed to properly consider the pre-existing disadvantage of the Aboriginal communities that compromised the Comparator Group, and that he did not give sufficient weight to the fact that the Pilot Sales Program did not have a significant impact on the claimant group. He concluded that the Pilot Sales Program corresponds to the needs, capacity and circumstances of the Aboriginal communities, and that it is also consistent with the needs, capacity and circumstances of the rest of Canadian society. Although the issue was not dealt with substantially at trial, Chief Justice Brenner permitted a number of interveners to argue that Section 25 of the Charter applied in this case. He eventually concluded that it did not. The application of Section 25 was fully argued by all parties and most interveners in the Court of Appeal and in this Court. The five members of the panel in the Court of Appeal of British Columbia were unanimous in dismissing the appeal, but for different reasons. Chief Justice Finch, and Appeal Justices Lowe and Levine, held that the appellants had totally failed to establish that they had been denied a benefit, and therefore failed to get past the first stage of the law test. They concluded that the Aboriginal communal license was simply part of a broader regulatory framework which provided for various user groups. The minister, in exercising his discretion, did not deny the appellants a real benefit, since they were provided other opportunities to fish under commercial licences. Appeal Justice McKenzie held that, assuming the appellants were successful in getting past the first two stages of the law test, they had failed to establish that the communal licences had a discriminatory purpose or effect. Appeal Justice Kirkpatrick held that the communal fishing licences granted were protected under Section 25 of the Charter as another right or freedom that pertains to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. She further held that Section 25 was triggered whenever the outcome of a charter challenge might abrogate or derogate from Aboriginal rights or freedoms. Since the appellants were seeking to eliminate the pilot sales program, Section 25 operated to bar their constitutional challenge under Section 15. Part 2. Analysis Like Appeal Justice Kirkpatrick, I am of the view that Section 25 of the Charter provides a complete answer to the question posed in this appeal. I will initially address the role and effect of Section 25, then outline the scope of the provision. Finally, I will propose an analytical approach to be followed when Section 25 is engaged and apply that approach to the present matter. There is no need for me to engage in a full analysis of the application of Section 15 of the Charter. It is sufficient for me to establish the existence of a potential conflict between this pilot sales program and Section 15. This said, I want to state clearly that I am in complete agreement with the restatement of the test for the application of Section 15 that is adopted by the Chief Justice and Justice Sabella in their reasons for judgment. Section 2.1 Role and Effect of Section 25. The enactment of the Charter undoubtedly heralded a new era for individual rights in Canada. Nevertheless, the document also expressly recognizes rights more aptly described as collective or group rights. The manner in which collective rights can exist with the liberal paradigm otherwise established by the Charter remains a source of ongoing tension within the jurisprudence and the literature. The tension comes to a head in the Aboriginal context in Section 25. Most authors believe that Section 25 is an interpretive provision that does not create new rights. B.H. Wildsmith outlines the two modes of interpretation most commonly posited. Quote, under one mode of interpreting Section 25, this section admonishes the decision maker to construe the Charter Right or Freedom so as to give effect to it, if possible, without an adverse impact on Section 25 Rights or Freedoms. If it is not possible to so construe the Charter right or freedom so as to avoid a negative impact on Native rights, then the force of Section 25 is spent. Effect is given to the Charter right or freedom despite the negative impact on Native rights. Under the second mode of interpreting Section 25, the conflict between Charter rights and Section 25 rights, if irreconcilable, would be resolved by giving effect to the Section 25 rights and freedoms. In short, Native rights remain inviolable and unaffected by the rights or freedoms guaranteed by the Charter, end quote. The first mode has been described in the literature as an interpretive prism or a mere canon of interpretation. The second method is most commonly referred to as a shield. Wildsmith provides an example that is highly reminiscent of the present matter to demonstrate that there is a serious difficulty in finding that Section 25 is a mere canon of interpretation. If a provincial act were to establish that, quote, no Indian shall hunt or fish except for his own personal consumption unless he has first obtained a license, end quote, and that no treaty or Aboriginal rights to this exemption existed, then a non-Indian hunter or fisherman would say that the statute violated Section fifteen one of the Charter. Indians would have a right to hunt or fish for personal consumption denied to others. This statutory right given to the Indians would be an other right or freedom under Section 25. The court would then be forced to choose between vindicating the equality right or the right protected by Section 25. If the real effect of Section 25 is to protect Native rights and freedoms from erosion based on the Charter, the conflict should be resolved by refusing to apply Section 15 in these circumstances. I agree that giving primacy to Section 25 is what was clearly intended. As will be seen, this is consistent with the wording and history of the provision. It is also consistent with the declarations of the then Deputy Minister of Justice, Roger Tassé, and with those of the Minister of Justice at the time of the 1983 Amendment, Justice Minister Mark Mcquigon Section 2.1.1, Interpretive Approach. Our court has given great importance to the need for purposeful interpretations. In the Queen and Uli Bell Enterprises Limited, Justice Yakobucci gives a detailed explanation of the rules of statutory interpretation, showing that one must first consider the wording of the Act, then the legislative history, the scheme of the Act, and the legislative context. Consequently, I will examine the manner in which Section 25 addresses the tension between individual and group rights with reference to all of the above. In reference re, Secession of Quebec, this Court stated, quote, Consistent with this long tradition of respect for minorities, which is at least as old as Canada itself, the framers of the Constitution Act included in Section 35, Explicit Protection for Existing Aboriginal and Treaty Rights, and in Section 25, a non-derogation clause in favor of the rights of aboriginal peoples." End quote. Clearly this court has held that a generous interpretation is mandated. Section 2.1.2, Textual and Structural Analysis First, let us consider the terms of Section 25. 25. The guarantee in this charter of certain rights and freedoms shall not be construed so as to abrogate or derogate from any Aboriginal, treaty or other rights or freedoms that pertain to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, including a, any rights or freedoms that have been recognized by the Royal Proclamation of October 7, 1763, and b, any rights or freedoms that now exist by way of land claims agreements or may be so acquired. Here we have an Act that is clear in its French version and ambiguous in its English version. Other provisions of the Charter provide the statutory context for the interpretation of Section 25. Section 21 provides that nothing in Sections 16-20 to abrogates or derogates from any right, privilege, or obligation with respect to the English and French languages. Section 29 provides that nothing in the Charter abrogates or derogates from any rights or privileges guaranteed by or under the Constitution of Canada in respect of denominational, separate, or dissentient schools. Most authors have considered the use of the word construed as significant in Section 25. In my opinion, the word construe is very broad. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the term as meaning, quote, to analyze or trace the grammatical construction of a sentence, to take its words in such an order as to show the meaning of the sentence, end quote. The term accordingly permits the understanding that in construing and interpreting the scope of charter rights, courts must ensure that they do not abrogate or derogate from an Aboriginal right or freedom. As noted above, Wildsmith describes the two competing approaches to Section 25 as differing modes of interpretation. I view the expression, shall not be construed, as ambiguous in terms of the effect of the provision. That said, I view the French version of Section 25 as being considerably more certain. The expression, ne pour pas loosely translates to without prejudice to, or will not prejudicially affect. It is also important to note that the French version of Section 25 uses the same terms as Sections 21 and 29 of the Charter, and that those sections have already been interpreted by this Court. In reference re-Bill 30, an act to amend the Education Act, ne atiento" pas attiento, in Section 29 was read by this Court in obiter dicta as constituting a bar to competing rights. The rule of internal consistency would require that the same words used in the same charter, especially in the same section, dealing with general provisions, be interpreted in the same way, militating against finding that the French version does not provide for the most consistent answer to the quest for a common meaning. In any case, like Wildsmith, I do not believe that the difference in wording is decisive. First, section 25 is very different from section 27, which is the only general provision in the Charter that has been clearly identified as a simple interpretive clause. Second, it creates a priority which is inconsistent with the idea of weighing one right against the other. Second, it creates a priority which is inconsistent with the idea of weighing one right against another. This Court has considered a similar provision in the Canadian Bill of Rights, which reads, Every law of Canada shall be so construed and applied as not to abrogate, abridge, or infringe any of the rights or freedoms herein recognized. In the Queen and Dry Bones, Justice Ritchie said that a more realistic meaning had to be given to the operative words, meaning that if a law cannot be sensibly construed and applied without infringing on the right, it must be declared inoperative. This was affirmed in Attorney General of Canada and Laval, there is no substantial difference in the present case. It could be argued that to interpret Section 25 as a shield would not be in keeping with the flexible, non-hierarchical approach to charter rights that this court has espoused. It is certainly true that this court has in the past acknowledged the difficulty in reconciling rights that often seem to be operating in opposition to each other, particularly in the context of equality claims. Nevertheless, Where collective rights are clearly prioritized in terms of protection, as I believe is the case here, individual equality rights have typically given way. In reference re-Bill 30, Justice Wilson stated at page 1197 that although the special minority religion education rights conferred by Section 93 of the Constitution Act, quote, sit uncomfortably with the concept of equality embodied in the Charter, end quote, Section 15 can be used neither to nullify the specific rights of the protected group nor to extend those rights to other religious groups. It is also instructive to read the reasons of former Chief Justice Dixon in Ma and Alberta, where, speaking of the application of Section 15 in the context of minority language rights in education, he said, quote, it would be totally incongruous to invoke in aid of the interpretation of a provision which grants special rights to a select group of individuals the principle of equality intended to be universally applicable to every individual. End quote. In my opinion, as argued by J.M.R. Bohr, Section 25 serves the purpose of protecting the rights of Aboriginal peoples where the application of the Charter protections for individuals would diminish the distinctive, collective, and cultural identity of an Aboriginal group. Section 2.1.3 Legislative History The legislative history of Section 25 was set out by Wildsmith at pages 5 to 8. He noted that Section 25 of the Charter can be traced back to Section 26 of Bill C-60, presented to Parliament on June 20, 1978. The white paper accompanying the bill stated that, quote, the renewal of the Federation must fully respect the legitimate rights of the native peoples, end quote. Section 26 was incorporated as Section 24 in the October 1980 resolution, which followed the first ministers' meeting of September 1980. Sanders described this section as being designed to protect Aboriginal rights from the egalitarian provisions of the Charter. On January 30th, 1981, An agreement was reached between representatives of Aboriginal organizations and the three national political parties on new provisions concerning Native peoples. These provisions were introduced that day to the Special Joint Committee of the Senate and of the House of Commons on the Constitution of Canada. A new Section 34 provided that, quote, "...the Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed," end quote. Section 24 was also altered by divorcing the Native rights issue from the general saving provision created by a new Section 25. These changes were then incorporated into the Consolidated Resolution of April 24, 1981. Support for the resolution weakened and there were new negotiations between Aboriginal representatives and government officials, which led to the introduction of a modified Section 25 on November 18, 1981. This section makes no reference to treaty rights or other rights or freedoms. Negotiations with the Premiers resulted in an amendment reflected in the final resolution of December 8, 1981. The text of that resolution was amended again by the adoption of the Constitution Amendment Proclamation 1983. This modification added Section 35 sub 3, which states, Quote, for greater certainty, in subsection 1, treaty rights includes rights that now exist by way of land claims agreements or may be so acquired, End quote. The Minister of Justice at the time, the Honourable Jean Chrétien, declared before the Special Joint Committee, quote, we say that there is nothing in this Charter that will infringe upon the rights of the natives. The rights of all the native Canadians, either flowing from the treaties or the Royal Proclamation, are assured to remain as they are and not be changed by the adoption of this Charter of Rights, its Clause 24." It was made abundantly clear that Section 25 creates no new rights. It was meant as a shield against the intrusion of the Charter upon Native rights and freedoms. A more comprehensive account of the historical foundation of Section 25 is found in Arbor at pages 30 to 37. Section 2.1.4, Academic and Judicial Commentary. Practically all authors agree with the fact that Section 25 operates as a shield. It might be noted that none of these authors have applied the rule of interpretation applicable to bilingual legislation. There is little case law on the issue, but the recent trend has been to see the protective features in Section 25 as a shield as opposed to an interpretive prism. In Campbell, Justice Williamson summarized the case law at that point as showing that, quote, the section is meant to be a shield which protects Aboriginal, treaty, and other rights from being adversely affected by provisions of the Charter, end quote. He further suggested that a purposive approach to Section 25 should be taken, and that, quote, the purpose of this section is to shield the distinctive position of Aboriginal peoples in Canada from being eroded or undermined by provisions of the Charter, end quote. Section 2.1.5 limitations on the shield. Is this shield absolute? Obviously not. First, it is restricted by Section 28 of the Charter, which provides for gender equality, notwithstanding anything in this charter. Second, it is restricted to its object, placing charter rights and freedoms in juxtaposition to Aboriginal rights and freedoms. The Queen and Vanderpeet provides guidance in that respect. This means, in essence, that only laws that actually impair Native rights will be considered, not those that simply have incidental effects on Natives. There is some uncertainty concerning what rights and freedoms are contemplated in Section 25. Most concerns have been with self-government issues. Are all of the laws adopted by bans under the authority of the Indian Act protected? Wildsmith suggests that this is possibly the case because their source is in section 91 sub 24 of the Constitution Act 1867, which is clearly associated with the concept of Indianness. He nevertheless says that the power in question would not be unrestrained because the courts would read in the need for reasonableness, as they did for the exercise of municipal powers, and because the Canadian Bill of Rights would continue to apply. The courts would, of course, have to deal with the Laval precedent to make this avenue useful. Wildsmith, at pages 25 to 26, suggests that the court may want to apply a proportionality test similar to that in Oaks in order to determine whether an act would truly abrogate an aboriginal right or freedom. He argues at page 37 that charter rights would still be available to Indians who would want to attack federal legislation giving preferential treatment to other Indians. There is no reason to believe that Section 25 has taken Aboriginals out of the Charter Protection Scheme. One Aboriginal group can ask to be given the same benefit as another Aboriginal group under Section 15(1). Sections 2 and 3 of the Charter apply to Aboriginals. Macklem, at pages 225-27, to 27, suggests that the court should distinguish between external and internal restrictions on Aboriginal laws that clash with the Charter and that in the case of internal restrictions, Aboriginal communities should be required to satisfy the Oaks Test to resist a challenge. It could also be argued that it would be contrary to the purpose of Section 25 to prevent an Aboriginal from invoking those sections to attack an act passed by band Council. It is not at all obvious in my view that it is necessary to constrain the individual rights of Aboriginals in order to recognize collective rights under Section 25. As Asia Char notes, individuals can have multiple identities. Aboriginals are Canadian. The framework of reconciliation is consistent with the need for flexibility in the application of Section 25. This is in line with the approach taken by Justice Binney in Mitchell and MNR. Some would like the court to ignore Section 25 because of the uncertainty in its application, particularly with regard to legislative powers contemplated by the Indian Act. I think it is unreasonable to suggest that a law should not be applied by this court because it is too difficult. After all, Section 25 is the only provision in the Charter which makes express reference to Aboriginal people, and the Charter is now 25 years old. I also think the concerns are overstated. Even under the present justification in a Section 1 analysis, There is much room for government to establish that charter values should not be overstated when dealing with the requirements of substantive equality of native peoples. Legislative powers of bans under Section 81 of the Indian Act are subject to disallowance. Those that fall under Sections 83 and 85.1 can be addressed by amendments to the Indian Act if a serious problem of consistency with charter values occurs. Section 25 rights are not constitutionalized and can be taken away. Parliament can also make a right subject to the same protections as those afforded in the Charter by its particular terms. Wildsmith mentions that Section 25 may not even apply to banned councils because they may not fall under the definition of Section 32 sub 1 sub A of the Charter, an argument that might find support in the fact that the Charlottetown Accord contained a provision that would have provided for the application of Section 25 to Aboriginal governments. All this to say, we need not resolve every imaginable case in this single decision. Part 2.2 Scope of Section 25 Protection In this case, what is significant about the scope of Section 25 protection is the meaning of the words other rights or freedoms. These words are all embracive, as mentioned by Lysick at page 472. This indicates that the protection was meant to be very broad. But the rights and freedoms are only those that pertain to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, those that are particular to them. The Agistum generis rule indicates that, in an enumeration, the general word must be constrained to persons or things of the same class as those specifically mentioned. In Section 25, the general term Other Rights or Freedoms follows the enumerated term Aboriginal and Treaty Rights. Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Sabella argue that the rule should apply to limit the rights or freedoms protected by those of a constitutional character. I believe that a broader approach is merited, one more consistent with the interpretive principles outlined above. I believe that the reference to Aboriginal and treaty rights suggests that the focus of the provision is the uniqueness of those persons or communities mentioned in the Constitution. The rights protected are those that are unique to them because of their special status. As argued by Macklem, Section 25 protects federal, provincial, and Aboriginal initiatives that seek to further interests associated with Indigenous difference from charter scrutiny. Accordingly. Legislation that distinguishes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in order to protect interests associated with Aboriginal culture, territory, sovereignty, or the treaty process deserves to be shielded from charter scrutiny. In Corbier in Canada, Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs, Justice Luray Dubay suggests in Obiter that the scope of Section 25 was likely greater than that of Section 35 of the Constitution Act and may include statutory provisions. She did qualify this statement by noting that the fact that a statute relates to Aboriginal people would not, without more, suffice to bring it within the scope of Section 25. In my opinion, the limitations proposed above are consistent with this statement. Laws adopted under the Section 91 sub 24 power would normally fall into this category, the power being in relation to the Aboriginal peoples as such, but not laws that fall under Section 88 of the Indian Act because they are, by definition, laws of general application. Other rights or freedoms compromise statutory rights which seek to protect interests associated with Aboriginal culture, territory, self-government, as mentioned above, and settlement agreements that are a replacement for treaty and Aboriginal rights. But private rights of individual Indians held in a private capacity as ordinary Canadian citizens would not be protected. The inclusion of statutory rights and settlement agreements pertaining to the treaty process and pertaining to Indigenous difference is consistent with the jurisprudence of this Court. As observed by Appeal Justice Kirkpatrick, this Court's decisions in Hayden Nation and British Columbia and Tattoo River Tinglet First Nation in British Columbia make it clear that the Crown's duty to consult with and accommodate Aboriginal peoples arises prior to the establishment of an Aboriginal or treaty right. These were, of course, the two enumerated terms discussed above in the context of the adjustum generis rule. Moreover, this court in Delgamook in British Columbia held that in order to preserve the honor of the crown, the court must be allowed to negotiate in good faith with Aboriginal peoples. Finally, in Sparrow, this court urged the crown to negotiate first prior to litigation. Section 25 reflects this imperative need to accommodate, recognize, and reconcile Aboriginal interests. William Pentney raises the concern that if the phrase other rights and freedoms is construed broadly to include legislated or common law rights, this will result in the undesirable and anomalous result that the scope of a charter-protected provision can be modified by ordinary legislation. Another concern often raised is that allowing statutory rights to be protected by Section 25 would elevate them to constitutional rights. Similar concerns have been raised with respect to Section 16-3 sub of the Charter, the Principle of Advancement for Language Rights. In La London, Ontario, Commission de Reconstruction des Services de Santé, the Ontario Court of Appeal addressed these concerns as follows. Quote, "we are not persuaded that section 16(3) includes a ratchet principle that close measures taken to advance linguistic equality with constitutional protection section 16(3) builds on the principle established in jones and new brunswick attorney general that the constitution's language guarantees are a floor and not a ceiling and reflects an aspirational element of advancement towards substantive equality" The aspirational element of section 16 sub 3 is not without significance when it comes to interpreting legislation. However, it seems to us undeniable that the effect of this provision is to protect, not constitutionalize, measures to advance linguistic equality. The operative legal effect of section 16 sub 3 is determined and limited by its opening words. Nothing in this charter limits the authority of Parliament or a legislature. Section 16 sub 3 is not a rights-conferring provision. It is, rather, a provision designed to shield from attack government action that would otherwise contravene Section 15 or exceed legislative authority. End quote. In my view, the same principles apply to legislative measures protected by Section 25. Part 2.3. Approach to Section 25. One important issue is to determine whether Section 25 is triggered. Appeal Justice Kirkpatrick held that it was before any consideration of the charter right. Chief Justice Brenner, the summary conviction appeal judge in this case, agreed by adopting the approach taken in the Campbell case. This seems to correspond to what was said by Justice Leray Dubé in Corbier. In Campbell, it was also held that Section 25 is a threshold issue. I agree. This does not mean that there is no need to properly define the Charter claim. It simply means that there is no need to go through a full Section 15 analysis, for instance in this case, before considering whether Section 25 applies. What has to be determined is whether there is a real conflict. I do not think it is reasonable to invoke Section 25 once a Charter violation is established. One reason for this position is that there would be no rationale for invoking Section 25 in the case of a finding of discrimination that could not be justified under Section 1, simply because, in the context of Section 15, as in this case, for instance, considerations that serve to justify that an act is not discriminatory would have to be relitigated under the terms of Section 25. Another reason is that a true interpretive section would serve to define the substantive guarantee. Section 25 is meant to preserve some distinctions which are inconsistent with weighing equality rights and Native rights. What is called for, in essence, is a contextualized interpretation that takes into account the cultural needs and aspirations of Natives. Dan Russell gives an example of this based on Section 3 of the Charter. He says that the right to vote should be reinterpreted in the context of banned elections to reflect the particularities of the clan system. This, I believe, is tantamount to saying Natives do not have the same rights as other Canadians, rather than saying they are protected like all other Canadians from interference with their individual rights as guaranteed by the Charter. W.F. Pentney takes the same approach by suggesting that the Charter be interpreted through a Native prism. I do not believe there are distinct Charter rights for Aboriginal individuals and non-Aboriginal individuals, or that it is feasible to take into account the specific cultural experience of Aboriginals in defining rights guaranteed by the Charter. The rights are the same for everyone. Their application is a matter of justification according to context. I also think it is contrary to the scheme of the Charter to invoke Section 25 as a factor in applying Section 1. Section 1 does not apply to Section 25, as such because Section 25 does not create rights. To incorporate Section 25 is inconceivable in that context. Section 1 already takes into account the aboriginal perspective in the right case. Section 25 is protective, and its function must be preserved. Section 25 was not meant to provide for balancing charter rights against aboriginal rights. There should be no reading down of Section 25 while our jurisprudence establishes that Aboriginal rights must be given a broad and generous application, and that where there is uncertainty, every effort should be made to give priority to the Aboriginal perspective. It seems to me that the only reason for wanting to consider Section 25 within the framework of Sections 15-1 sub is the fear mentioned earlier that individual rights will possibly be compromised. Another fear that is revealed by some pleadings in this case is that rights falling under Section 25 will be constitutionalized. This fear is totally unfounded. Section 25 does not create or constitutionalize rights. Section 2.4, application to this case. There are three steps in the application of Section 25. The first step requires an evaluation of the claim in order to establish the nature of the substantive charter right and whether the claim is made out prima facie. The second step requires an evaluation of the Native right to establish whether it falls under Section 25. The third step requires a determination of the existence of a true conflict between the Charter right and the Native right. Section 2.4.1 The Nature of the Claim The Appellants claim that Aboriginal fisheries have been given the right to fish in exclusivity for one day prior to the opening of the general commercial fishery in which they participate, and that this right gives rise to a benefit that is denied to non-Aboriginals on the basis of race. They argue that the fact that communal licenses are given to a number of bands which then authorize specific fishers to fish is irrelevant, membership in bands not being a valid proxy that is functionally relevant to the regulation of the public fishery. The respondent has presented a number of arguments opposing the claim. He says in particular that Section 15 is not breached because the claimants are individual license holders while the Aboriginal licenses are communal. There is no valid comparator. He says that there is no denial of benefit because the program allows for sufficient catches under different categories of beneficiaries, some communal, some individual. It is a finding of fact that the fishery is not communal. It is also a finding of fact that many Aboriginals who fish under the communal licenses also participate in the general commercial fishery. More importantly, it is admitted that the Aboriginal fishers are being given a license to fish that is not available to Aboriginals. The fact that the authorization to fish is given by way of banned licenses is immaterial. Government cannot do indirectly what it cannot do directly. As mentioned in Vanderpeet a paragraph 19, These rights arise from the fact that aboriginal people are aboriginal. It is also some indication of the true nature of the license that practically all parties and interveners in this case speak of the right to fish afforded by the pilot sales program. Even if communal licenses were significant, their nature says nothing about the fact that limiting them to natives as a user group may be discriminatory. The fact that the program is race-based is established beyond doubt. The declarations of Minister Crosby and government officials explaining the rationale for the program clearly relate to agreements with bands in the regulation and management of the fishery. The very title of the regulations is instructive, Aboriginal Communal Fishing Licenses Regulations. With regard to the existence of a benefit, here again there is a finding of fact of Provincial Court Justice Kitchen in any case, it is hard to understand how the respondent can argue that there was considerable benefit to Aboriginals, particularly the Sawasan Band, which went from 15 to 35 boats, and increased revenues and employment for Aboriginals, with no impact on non-Aboriginal fishers, while the catch is limited by allocations adjusted from year to year. What is allocated to bands and exclusivity cannot be allocated to the general fishery. There is, in my view, a prima facie case of discrimination pursuant to Section 15.1. There is no need to proceed further in the analysis or to invoke Section 1. The potential for conflict is established. Section 2.4.1 The Native Right The Minister issued licenses to Aboriginals in application of a discretion given by the Fisheries Act and the Aboriginal Communal Fishing Licenses Regulations. The respondent argues that these licenses do not constitute a right or freedom as prescribed by Section 25 of the Charter. He says that only those rights and freedoms that are vital to maintaining the distinctiveness of Aboriginal cultures within the larger Canadian polity have the potential to fall within Section 25, and adds that it follows that to be afforded protection under Section 25, another right or freedom must, one, be of sufficient magnitude to warrant overriding a charter right or freedom, 2. Manifest a strong degree of permanence, and 3. Be intimately related to the protection and affirmation of Aboriginal distinctiveness. The license in question does not satisfy these criteria. The license permitting sale was simply an exercise of administrative discretion, subject to numerous conditions and of brief duration. It was only effective for 24 hours. The agreement entered into with the Musqueam, Burund, and Sawasan Bands expressly stated that it did not create any aboriginal rights. The conclusion of Chief Justice Brenner that the license did not create a right under Section 25 was correct. The first comment that I would make is that the criterion of magnitude is simply inconsistent with the actual terms of Section 25. The section simply speaks of rights that pertain to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, i.e. any rights that advance the distinctive position of Aboriginal peoples. The same is true with regard to the criterion of permanence. As mentioned earlier in these reasons, other rights or freedoms necessarily refers to statutory rights which can be abolished at any time. The fact that the agreements with the named bands stated that they did not create any aboriginal rights is of no moment. Section 25 does not create any rights. The respondent agrees that the intended scope of other rights or freedoms in Section 25 is achieved by applying the adjustum generis rule. At paragraph 101 of his factum, the respondent speaks of the unique relationship between British Columbia Aboriginal communities and the fishery. This should be enough to draw a link between the right to fish given to Aboriginals pursuant to the pilot sales program and the rights contemplated by section 25. The right to fish has consistently been the object of claims based on Aboriginal rights and treaty rights, the enumerated terms and the provisions. Furthermore, the respondent himself argues that these rights were a first step in establishing a treaty right. As noted earlier in these reasons, Section 25 reflects the notion of reconciliation and negotiation present in the treaty process and recognized by the previous jurisprudence of this court, Haida Nation, Taku River. Chief Justice Brenner discussed the rights and freedoms provided to the Aboriginal peoples participating in the pilot sales program as well as the significance of the program to the Aboriginal peoples of British Columbia. Quote, the AFS represented an attempt to reconcile this unique relationship with the need for regulation of the fishery by providing for a separately regulated fishery respectful of and sensitive to traditional Aboriginal values. This was achieved through the negotiation of such matters as co-management of the fishery, allocation of fish and other matters of importance to Aboriginal groups. This was achieved through the negotiation of such matters as co-management of the fishery, allocation of fish, and other matters of importance to Aboriginal groups. It also provided an opportunity for communal licensing, which is of particular and unique importance to Aboriginal communities." Quote. Finally, in my opinion, the right in this case is totally dependent on the exercise of powers given to Parliament, under Section 91 Sub-24 of the Constitution Act 1867, which deals with a class of persons, Indians. Here again, it is interesting to note the parallel made between Section 93 and Section 91 Sub-24 of the Constitution Act 1867 by Justice Esty in Reference Rebill 30 at page 1206, where he says, quote, in this sense, Section 93 is a provincial counterpart of Section 91 Sub-24 which authorizes the Parliament of Canada to legislate for the benefit of the Indian population in a preferential, discriminatory, or distinctive fashion vis-a-vis others, quote. To argue that according these licenses is not a right but an exercise of ministerial discretion is to privilege form over substance. The Charter cannot be interpreted as rendering unconstitutional the exercise of powers consistent with the purpose of section 91 sub 24, Nor is it rational to believe that every exercise of the Section 91 sub 24 jurisdiction requires a justification under Section 1. Section 25 is a necessary partner to Section 35 sub 1. It protects Section 35 sub 1 purposes and enlarges the reach of measures needed to fulfill the promise of reconciliation. Section 2.4.3 Potential Conflict I think it is established in this case the right given by the pilot sales program is limited to Aboriginals and has a detrimental effect on non-Aboriginal commercial fishers who operate in the same region as the beneficiaries of the program. It is also clear that the disadvantage is related to racial differences. Section 15 of the Charter is prima facie engaged. The right to equality afforded to every individual under Section 15 is not capable of application consistently with the rights of Aboriginal fishers holding licenses under the pilot sales program. There is a real conflict. Part 3. Conclusion Section 25 of the Charter applies in the present situation and provides a full answer to the claim. For this reason, I would dismiss the appeal. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Radomile. Audio engineering by Anthony Radomile. Graphic design by Julie Lindy. Check her out online at julialindyart.com. And music done by Matt Radomile at radnkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.